0: History lecture ninety-eight, Rabbi Blayweis. The we mentioned this a long time ago. The last time in history we had this uh, massive population explosion was, of course, uh, probably, oh, during the English. No. No, no, no. Long, long time no, ago. Long? No, no, no. Long, long time ago. Bud Mitzrayim. Right the uh, six, six babies per term, per, per, uh, per woman. The, um, <coughs> and even then, I, uh, sh- I foreshadowed this uh, discussion that we're gonna have now of the 19th century. The Jewish people have, an, have almost unprecedented, with the exception of Mitzrayim, um, a population uh, explosion. Um, the demographics look a little bit like this. Obviously, these are um, not 100% precise, but they're pretty good. At this point, the the census is taken in different societies and there's a greater exactitude than certainly in previous generations. So in the early 1800s, there were about 2.5 million Jews accounted for in the world around the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Early 1800s, that shoots up uh, in 1880, suddenly we find Qal Yisrael triples in, uh, it, within a lifetime, effectively, within, within an average life of a person, 70 years, uh, they became 7.5 million Jews in the world. That's more than today. No, it's not more than today, but it's, it's extraordinary. And by the turn of the century, there's some 9 million Jews in the world. People got busy. So, you have to put this in the context, the historical, social, geographic context, this is a time, and we're about to hear, of immense persecution under the harshest of circumstances, often starvation, death. Um, and uh, against the odds, Klaal Yisrael kept fulfilling the mitzvah of Puravu. <coughs> I know that, um, at least in my father's side, each of my grandparents uh, were one of. Um, among their they were among, among a sibling group of somewhere between ten and twenty each of them. I think one of them was uh, had thirteen siblings. The other one, sixteen siblings, and that was not uncommon. And uh, again, under the direst of circumstances. Now there'll be sweeping changes in the world that that will that account for part of this, including new sanitation conditions, new medical conditions that will reduce, drastically reduce infant mortality, not just of the Jewish world, but of the world in general. There'll be an increased urbanization, which we're gonna talk about, because it's gonna be mostly negative for Kalal Yisrael as Jews leave the shtetl, leave the village and take flight to the cities. Um, there's, in there's general, a mobility. There's, there's, the times are characterized by mass migration and by the end of the 19th century, it's a mass, it's a mass migration overseas that will, have, will, will disrupt much of traditional life, logically. Jews will be increasingly involved in different kinds of businesses, heretofore closed to them now suddenly open up to them. For example, we find Jews at the forefront of almost every aspect of the Industrial Revolution so they're in textile factories, Jews are involved in tobacco, Jews are, Jews are instrumental in the first, and we mentioned this by the Rothschilds, but it's not just the Rothschilds, in the first railroad being laid, first in Europe and then elsewhere in the world. <coughs> yeah? And this is all because the Jews were able to leave the because of the This is certainly part of this process. We, we, we began discussing this process called the emancipation, the Enlightenment, from a secular perspective, it's 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 hopeful. It's exciting. New opportunities present themselves. And from a point of view, our point of view of tradition, it's generally disastrous. More Jews are lost to um, these processes than to all the persecution we've suffered in, 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 over all the centuries. Ironically, persecution. It's sad that it gets to this, but per- persecution does have a way of stabilizing um, tradition. And it's when we're given certain freedoms that tradition usually suffers. Together with the breakout, one of the other negative qualities of this, of this new free, freedom, literally emancipation, was uh, the Jews are now increasingly visible in society, but anti-Semitism doesn't abate. It increases and now takes on a brand new, to some degree, a brand new face it's a, there's a new brand of secular anti-Semitism, different than anything we've seen in the past in many ways. It's more virulent than the church's anti-Semitism, which has been the major source of anti-Semitism. Uh, the, the, the Christians have been really the villains for most of our history, but at least the church had its, if you can call them moral, moral limits. Uh, the idea of genocide from the church's perspective was unthinkable you remember the Pope's Jews, you remember the, the, they, they, they had certain, they, they had to always justify it in the context of an inquisition. They, they, they claimed it was, they, were re- they weren't were really persecuting the Jews, it was more to, t- to clean up the lapsed conval- con- Catholics and, and and so on. And um, suddenly you have this new brand of secularized antisemitism, what they call progressive antisemitism. And if you think about this and you know some of the figures associated with this, Think Nietzsche or Rousseau or Voltaire, if the names mean anything to you. Marx. Marx certainly will be part of it, no question. Uh, certainly, Jews are among the, as, as, as that we have seen in the past, Jews are certainly among the leading anti Semites. The term anti Semitism actually comes out of this period. Um, and these people are looking at what they increasingly refer to as the Jewish problem. What is the Jewish problem from their perspective? That Jews taking exist. What's that? Taking jobs? No, not just taking jobs. That's a small aspect. They, they just don't know what to do with the Jews and they'd be, frankly, much happier. They could just go away, those Jews, is <coughs> the attitude. And we find it in many instances already emerging in, in unembarrassed forms. Um, and, and the idea is, what, how do you solve that intractable Jewish problem? Now, with this as a background and with all of the uh, processes of the emancipation, it's, it's in this context that reform, uh, the Reform movement will emerge. The first official temple initially begins as an idea, an offshoot of Mendelssohn's thinking, but the official Reform temple... Meaning, now you're not just you going you're, you're, you're leaping off an idea and organizing it and manifesting it in an organized community-centered institution, an actual synagogue named for a, a, a really a temple, which is a, a Christianized name. It's in the the city of Sisen, Germany, in 1810. And as reform will develop. The accoutrements of a classic reform synagogue include, very much, the church trappings of an organ, of clerical robes, the prayer now no longer in Hebrew but in German. Keep keep uh, keep in mind that many of the uh, many of the cutting edge institutions of uh, of assimilation of the Jewish people, they were spearheaded in Germany. Remember the role of Germany, remember the Gemara in Megillah about Germany as as as, as being a quasi putative, if not Amalek, certainly a descendant of Esau, and I that understand. all of these developments will come from Germany is is is, is we understand nothing's accidental in the Cutter Sparkles world. It's significant. Yeah. What was the Gemara in about, about Germany? So we'll get to it, but there's a, there's, a, there's there's an eerily it. prescient Gemara in, in Megillah. You can look it up in Vavim at the very bottom of Amun Aleph Gemara. going up going up onto Amun Base more or less the Shoah and the development of Germany in the modern era. This <coughs> is, it, is it be with Germany? Be, uh, to, to what is Germany? the Germany? Germania <laughs> Shel Erdom is the way it's referred to <laughs> in the Gemara. and yeah. Germania is the name that's used there, and it's, it's uh, Germamia okay. Shel Edom, and many of before the Befarshim Rabiak Govenden, the Vilnagon, and others say that's referring to Germany. Then even, even Rashi said it was Before there was an institution of Germany, I mean, this is the days of the Gemara, I'm predicting what will be in the future. I thought Rashi even said that it was German. I don't think Rashi does, no. One of the architects of this new movement is Avram Geiger, whose idea he, he advocates a complete rejection of what he called Talmudic Judaism. Does this sound familiar? Who who who? who no, I'm asking you, which which other historical force advocates oh, I, I a rejection? Oh no 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 oh, no no! very confused. No 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 no. I mean I meant in history. Where where have we seen this before? Uh, uh, no no no. Shabbetzim never went against Talmudic Judaism. Which movement or group went oh, against the Tzedukim? But really the Karaites. The Tzedukim. It's it's a little bit of anachronism to say the because they were just at the emergence of what we call Talmud there was no Talmud at the time, the Karaites went in favor of the Mikra, against the rabbis, against Rabbinic Judaism. So the reform often are likened to the Karaites and conceptually it makes sense. Of course it's different. You don't find Karaites in this in these days so connected. Was that because reform doesn't even keep right? The reform. Reform will right. They'll be significantly more radical than the Karaites. Although I, I told you that in my day, I used to lead these summer trips from San Francisco, and in the, in the Bay Area, there are there there's at least one Karaite community center. I think they call it a synagogue. And and kids went on the trip to Israel. And as far as the reform concerns is, is concerned, I mean, certainly since half their kids aren't even Jewish anyway. Uh, I told you that one summer in doing a genealogy, I, I go- went around and schmoozed with all the kids and figured out, um, I asked them to explain their, their family genealogy, and everybody loves to talk about themselves, so they were always very forthcoming, and um, I figured out in one summer, the 180 kids that I was in charge of, of them, over half of them were going in, on, this Ju- on this Jewish trip, the supposedly Jewish trip, and in one of the trips, there was a group of Karaites, so the, the reform Kerai Connection, is conceptually clear and, and even sometimes socially overlaps. Um, another major name in early reform is Samuel Holdheim, who uh, went out aggressively against all those archaic, bar- 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 uh, barbaric processes, including Brismila. We don't do that to the body. Today we know there's a whole movement, an anti mila movement, but um, that's not new. It starts a couple hundred years ago. They were against anything particular, any ritual like shofar, the use of Hebrew, because that would maybe signify you as a Jew, which for them is a source of shame. Uh, they were anti-Mashiach. Nobody, we couldn't, there was no Mashiach. Um, Shabbos is oppressive. They were anti-Shabbos. Um, they changed the weekly day. You had to have a weekly day dedicated to religious identification, so that should be like a good Christian Sunday. And that's why, if this means anything, I mean, Barack, this must be familiar to you, this is the, the, the uh, Sunday school yeah. is a must. In, when uh, I used to teach in Reformed synagogues, um, that was certainly very common that um, there were kids who came for classes. The, usually the largest classes were on Sunday school, meaning the most peripheral Reformed Jews, when they want to do the bare minimum necessary, oh, okay, so they'll send their kid to Sunday school. The more affiliated Reformed Jews, those who are a little bit more involved, also send their kids to afternoon school in the week, and that was Hebrew school. Wow. <coughs> yeah. But minimally, minimally, you went to Sunday school. That was seen as the greater priority. That's like a good Christian does. Why, why did you, what was your mistake at Kevin? No. Why you're mad? No, just i It's like so, um, sarcastic. Um, ah, gotcha, gotcha. I didn't catch it. The um, the reform rejects the. Uh, some say, by the way, that the fact that Berlin, in the reform mind, and the people spoke like this, that the uh, that Berlin took on the guise of Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, and some say that that. Um, might have have had something to do with the fact that a century later Berlin would be the headquarters of the Nazi movement. Nothing is coincidental in history. Uh, I I point this out, and I might as well add to this. I always wonder now, if I have this online, and I know that there are people out there listening to some of my 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 shiriam, and I guess anybody can have access to it, there are people out there who would definitely take offense when you try to um, Give any accountability, human accountability, to the Holocaust. As far as the secular Jew is concerned, the Holocaust—I mean, people say as much. It's kifira. It's a Baruch Hu's fault. They're, they're angry at Hashem for the Holocaust, uh, which we we recognize as—I as, mean, obviously it's, it's heretical, but it's 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 also ridiculous. Uh, the Creator of the universe is not at fault for anything. Um, but the um, but when you suggest to them that it may have been something that we did, that perhaps perhaps that the headquarters of the reform and later the conservative movement what was called historical Judaism, which we'll we'll talk about too, not today, um, was in Germany, and that maybe there's a connection, a correlation between these two. That's simply doing the traditional Jewish thing of trying to make connections, to try to figure out if bad things happen to people, maybe there's a reason, and maybe there's something we should do about it. The uh, <coughs> reform reject the notion of what they called automatic assumption of solidarity with Jews everywhere. The song that we sing with our eyes closed, Achenu Kol Beis Yisrael, all of our brothers, and we sing it especially in times of tragedy. I think it was sung it was sung a lot this summer when um, people were touched around the world by the plight of these three boys who were really murdered from the outset. But this notion that Jews are connected, which is so central, the reform were against. They said, that's too particular. I, I'm not involved with the Jews, and we'll see, that with the, we'll see that in the ugliest instance, the most obvious example of that. Uh, we'll hear the story of the Damascus blood libel in 1840, where Jews were in terrible trouble. And for the first time in this Gullus, there were other Jews, one particular, we'll hear about it, may know who I'm talking about, one, one great hero, who stuck his neck out and actually it did something, it was effective. And Jews around the world rallied politically and managed to save at least some of the Jews in Damascus from the, uh, the anti-Semitic uh, attack and, um, and, and, and from death. And the Reform's reaction was, shah, shy, be quiet. You're gonna draw attention to ourselves. We don't want to hear about this. We're just because we're Jewish doesn't mean we have anything to do with our with our with our distant cousins in Damascus. It's, it's what uh, the who was he, the Secretary of State during World War II, right? Yes, I'm. Gonna, I, that's here. You've got that on your own, or is that something you've heard me quote before? Uh, I got him. Rosen, Rosenberg, Rosenmin, Rosenbaum, one of those. Samuel, is his first name, right? And it's Henry Kissinger. Uh, caught on tape recently, within the last few years, um, and 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 that's the attitude: is you don't want to call too attention to the fact that we're Jewish. See you at the uh, Mazda. Huh? Wow. <laughs> <coughs> they uh, abs- they were uh, they abhorred the traditional Jewish dress and look they'd be embarrassed to be associated with anybody uh, that 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 was in any way markedly uh, Jewish. They, they, for their own uh, sake, if they were asked, they prefer to be called, get this expression, Germans of the Mosaic Persuasion. Okay, Mosaic meaning from Moses. Germans of the Mosaic Persuasion. It's true, that's our ethnicity, that's where we come from. But we are good Germans first and last. Was there was their preferred identification? Uh, I, I remember in reform youth groups asking people, that one of the thought-provoking questions was, are you, are American you a Jewish-American or an American <laughs> Jew? <laughs> and uh, for most of those kids, the answer was, they're Americans. They're neither American Jews nor Jewish-Americans. Yeah. Was the one event that really started this movement, or was it just like a... It came at the time, like we were talking about making a temple and all that. Was there just like one moment when they came out saying that they were reformed Jews? I said it became official in 1810 with the organization, with the opening of the first reformed temple. And that—that that was the thing when the temple opened. That I mean, that, listen, if you're looking for you know uh, milestones, that's certainly a milestone because before it's just a series of ideas with nothing organized and official to manifest. They would seek, and their goal, of course, was to provide, we've said this before, uh, a vehicle of acculturation within the general Christian society, but not conversion. You could be a Jew and belong and, of course, pay dues at a Reformed synagogue, but that was to help you, as best you could, um, become a good German. and the judaism was simply a, a, a was a modifier it was that was just was just a detail in the mix a new scholarship would come out it was certainly a product of the enlightenment but it would be associated strongly with the reform movement cuz you know you have rabbis and people assume cuz the traditional mode of the rabbi is you're the teacher but if they reject all of tradition what exactly is it, it is that they're teaching and what what do you go about teaching in rabbinic school I mean, I can tell you from friends, I never went. I never wound up going to HUC, but I can tell you from friends, it's a lot of um, homiletics and social work skills, and and relatively light on the Jewish text. It does. They are glorified social workers, often Reform rabbis. I mean, it's a very fun job in many ways. You can stand with clergy robes. You can preach a good uh, whatever you want to preach. Make it up and call it Judaism. They won't. They won't call you on it because there is no official guidelines for what Judaism includes. You can talk about the news. They often like to talk about the news. You know, and just, and, and then and then and then simply you know editorialize on this week's uh, head head story, head stories in your in your drusha on Shabbos night. How would you tie that in? What do you need to tie it in? We'll tie it into what exactly? Judaism. Whatever that is. So they. Uh, this is. That's. That's all preamble to um, what they called and this is as much fun to say as it is to describe, Der, Wiesenschaft. Der Wiesenschaft. uh which was uh, no, not a weapon used by the Nazi machine, but rather it, it, it was a new enlightened scholarship, very heavy on the academic approach, which treats Judaism, and it continues to do so, as a museum piece so that they'll study, and, and this is the rule of thumb, they'll study, let's say it's an archaic, quaint, if it's quaint, if it's related to positively, all Jewish ritual as sort of silly back, backwards kinds of things, but just like you'd study, an anthropologist would study um, practices of, of, of island people in the South Pacific Islands. So divisionschaft studies Judaism, studies, uh, well, of course, most famously, coming out of this, we'll talk about this later, is the is is um, a related school and all overlapping the uh, Wellhausen school of biblical criticism, introducing the idea, not for the first time. I'm not it's not, not that brand that new, the action, but the idea, but but the, that, developing the idea, I should say, that the that the Torah is not shemaim, that the Bible has four at least four authors, J P D and E. <coughs> is, that, is that the actual name of the, uh, the Lord? Me. Yeah. Biblical criticism. They're biblical critics. They take a balcony view, looking down at, biblical, at, Bible, at the Bible as, as it were, like as, as the Bible's existing in a petri dish, and they're examining it under the microscope and dissecting it, like so many cadavers in science lab. What's wrong with that approach? Um, I don't know if it's right or wrong. I'll let you be the jury. Here's a traditional response to that approach, is the way, the way I would say the academic, the secular, enlightened academic, takes a, what I would claim, an arrogant, superior view to everything he studies, assuming that by virtue of being in university, by his great scholarship, he can understand better than the people can themselves. Um, it presumes, therefore, let's see, in, 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 in approaching our holy Torah, that if there is an inconsistency in the Torah, for example, you don't have to go further than the first two chapters of the... Of the uh, <coughs> Of, of, Vreshis, of the book of Genesis, and you see that there are different accounts of creation for a classic biblical critic, from their perspective that must mean two different human authors with different styles. And the editors mm-hmm. of the Torah grafted the different styles together, would be their perspective. From a traditional perspective, which is predicated on humility, we assume our premise, Nasavanishma, and is this is all divine. Therefore, I'm not bigger than the Torah. The Torah is infinitely larger than me. And I look down from my own humble position as a student, not as a superior, but, but, but from underneath. And I see perhaps a contradiction between the two accounts in creation. And I assume that the Kanish Baruch is actually trying to convey two profound points about Adam and the nature of Adam and I comment on this one, this is one that comes to my mind, but I mentioned this one when we gave the family, the the marriage Choborah that Rav Soloveitchik from Wayu does an absolutely uh, persuasive analysis explaining what the function of the two accounts of creation, the first one rendering Adam what he calls Adam Harishon as being that facet of the male of the personality that goes out to create worlds to name to to conquer and, and and that's a facet of humanity it's a facet of what we're doing in marriage is that it's it's a business transaction. We have a job to get done it involves producing new offspring and conveying the tradition from one generation to the next. that involves a certain amount of, of of practical organization and work, and that's all evident in the first account of Adam Arishon. In the second chapter, we, you find Adam Arishon. You find, you find a soulful, human, very emotional person who, who, who's alone. Lo tov heos Adam Levado, and it's not good for that man to be alone, and so Kodesh Baruch creates a, an Ezer Kinecto, his helpmate, and to his helpmate, when Chava, when she's not called Chava, she's called Isha, at first, He says, he says poetically to her, etzim atzmi my bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and that's another dimension of Adam's personality, the emotional questing, the striving, the striving facet, and both are critical. Uh, if you want to put that, those ideas, let's say, in terms of our, I, I had a great time over Shabbos, and let's, in, in, in terms of our Shabbos, so I had to, you know, plan this, this, this activity. A lot of it involved logistics, just the pain in the neck, hassle shopping, and putting food up on the, on the plata, and setting the table, and clean up, and everything like that. But in order to facilitate the second, all the, all the deeper mystical uh, content that what we did together, you can't do that as the mission of Pirkei says, in kemach in Without flour, you can't learn to you. You get, you. gotta deal with this world in order to get, to, the, to get beyond this world. And those are two facets conveyed. But a biblical critic, would get lost in the two different authors and would fi- would fail to see any of any of the deeper ideas um, it wasn't just towards bible it's a bit, it's a, it's a critical analysis of talmud talmud also a flawed human work from their perspective subject to our somehow they feel themselves worthy of judging the talmud you know that they couldn't they can they, they 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 don't even reach the the, the, the tiny tiniest uh, toe of the, of the of the of the last of the amorae you remember our statement? Remember, remember how Rebbe, Yehuda Nossi, reflected on his on his own Rebbe and the difference between their generation alone, and how, how what a what a what a pit squeak, what a what a what a tiny personality Rebbe was compared to Rebbe Meir Remember how he said it? I once saw Rebbe Meir's backside. But I didn't get Rebbe Mir, he's a giant next to me. And yet these people in their arrogance presume that they can somehow sit in judgment. Over these, over these previous um, Gedolim. Which, like uh, Rabbi also, also true. Also true. Numerous examples of this I can we can cite, but the message is clear. Um, now, obviously, maybe this goes without saying, but this was true in the first generation. Some were aggressively anti-orthodox. And you know the term orthodox emerges now as a useful functional term for the first time in history. What were we before we were orthodox? We were simply Yisrael, Yehudim. It's the normal thing. That's what most, okay, it's true. Some were more scholarly, some were greater year had greater year as Shemaim. Some were from or some were less from. But, you know, for even the less from, Usually the shul they didn't go to most of the time was Orthodox or was the r- traditional one, but now in contrast with the reform, you suddenly need to put a, slap a label on the old version, and the new label Orthodox was used derisively. It means the the you know it means technically correct, correct approach, but it was used it was used uh, mockingly as implying it was outdated, old fashioned. Oh, you're Orthodox. <coughs> in Frankfurt. The Reform officially, and they, they campaigned for this, they were aggressively anti-ritual. They, they succeeded in closing down the mikveh, meaning not only did they obviously not have their wives go to the mikveh, but they were displeased that there were any women anywhere that, that continued this old archaic ritual, as far as they were concerned. They banned kosher shrit, um, shrita. They banned learning the Talmud. And most of the from Jews that lingered in Frankfurt, and there were, we just saw, for example, the rabbi Frankfurt, Frankfurt was the prima Primagodim. So Frankfurt was historically a place of, uh, of, uh, of great tradition. Uh, for a period, at least, Frankfurt, uh, many of the from Jews will be chased out of town. That will be corrected. We're going to see again, Frankfurt will emerge in the same century, as, in the same century as a great bastion of Torah, uh, learning, and there would be some great figureheads. Anybody know who returns to Frankfurt on Main in particular, who's a big hero of, of Jewish history? Uh, what's the name? Uh, 19th century? Rev. Shemshur Rafal Hirsch will lead something of his own revolution okay. there, and, and, and there'll be uh, quite a comeback. <coughs> yes. Uh, by the mid-1900s, there would be only 100 observant families, but that, again, will be turned around. Um, now, as much as there is now a new movement on the map, There is initially immense resistance, and we're going to hear about some of the heroes of history who went against early reform. Um, And it was not quite viral, not quite its own major success in Germany, nothing like like what will happen in America. And the following century, actually in the mid-1900s, there's a, there's, there is some, something of an immigration of German Jews to America, and they will bring with them the reform. They'll open their first flagship rabbinical school in Cincinnati. Uh, <coughs> and Cincinnati being uh, considered the center the centerpiece of American reform, and from there it will indeed take off. The um, if reform didn't quite take off in Europe, what does is definitely an offshoot is the Haskalah, the secular enlightenment in general. We've commented on the Haskalah, the enlightenment, but we really haven't uh, analyzed it deeply. So let's 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 do that now. Initially, it's not so much. The Enlightenment, and at this point, you know what I mean by Enlightenment: Jews leaving the ghetto and embracing secular, often Christian values. That was not so much of an option in Eastern Europe, at least not at first. Among other things, they were they were not exposed to modernity. You remember that the the, um, the edicts of tolerance were distinctly Western or slightly Central European. Uh, that that was that was where that was where suddenly Jews had opportunities in the in the East they didn't have the same uh, opportunities. Um, not only that, in Eastern Europe, who wanted to be like the like the nations of the world? Remember the Cossacks and not just the Cossacks. I mean, they they kind of epitomized this. But most of the non-Jews were perceived by Jews as boorish, as drunkards. They were. They were unattractive. And so there wasn't the same impetus, there wasn't the same push to, well, let's become like them. But in Western Europe and Central Europe to some degree, there was a real culture out there and it included a lot of, uh, a lot of Greek values of, of uh, sensual pleasures. And the, there was a pull and there was an opportunity, much like, again, ancient Greece. Um, but by the mid 18th century, Together, because of the increasing poverty, and the anti-Semitism that causes people to become increasingly desperate, even the Eastern European Jews begin to dabble and then eventually embrace the uh, Enlightenment. So if you can, let's say if I were doing a, a PowerPoint presentation and I had a map of Europe in front of you, and you would see lights indicating where the Enlightenment kind of took off, initially the lights would be, uh, would be reflected around Western and Central Europe, and then eventually be spreading East. Are you, you're reading something funny. Rav Simcha Bunam of Psishka, who we're going to get to, we'll talk about about his, his figure. He was part of the uh, revolution within the revolution of Hasidis, But he described the intoxicating effects of the Haskalah. And you have to kind of put yourself back to, imagine that you are right now a Jew, of the 19th century, having endured this long and having suffered this much, he said, I'm going to quote him, we witness in our time a new wisdom revealed in the world. All of this, this enlightenment, um, we call it today the information superhighway. But the fact that new ideas were developed in the sciences and the arts and literature uh, was new, not just for the Jews, but for, for Western civilization in general. And Rav Simcha Bonham comments on it. He said, all of this was anticipated and prophesied in the Zohar. When the pasuk tells us, the beginning of the, near the beginning of the Torah, in the 600, in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the wellsprings of the great deep the depths of water burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. You remember the pasuk? You can picture it, describing the flood, the Mabu. So, he says, Rav Simcha Chabonin understands from the Zohar, this refers to the 600 year in the 6th millennium, which he dates in the, in the 19th century. He says, this refers to the water flooding the universe that the wellsprings of wisdom would begin to open. And he said, the problem was the world was unworthy, and therefore, a lot of the wisdom that emerged would be misunderstood, and misused to deny Hashem's providence and to deny his Torah, would in fact, logically, it should point to the opposite. Have you ever heard this before? It's a very famous bit from Rav Simcha Bunam. understandably, too, it's, it's eerie how, 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 how much the pasuk really anticipates modern times. The, um, like Mendelssohn, the uh, enlightened Jews advocated, and, and by, ex- by extension, certainly one finds this in reform, when I'm talking about these two movements, it's not like they exist in two different bubbles. There clearly is overlap. Enlightened Jews advocate that they sh- people should be Jewish at home, but like a non-Jew outside. And of course, that almost always results in assimilation. They will develop, when you don't have Taira anymore, you have to develop your own separate Taira or what you treat as Torah. And they have their own subcategories of enlightenment. So now you have a new, a new uh, institution emerging as the Hebrew Enlightenment, the Hebrew Haskalah, where people take a scholarly interest in the ancient Jewish language. And it's out of this interest that eventually the, the revolution to start speaking this language on a, on, a, on a colloquial basis will emerge. There's a Yiddish Haskalah, the study of ancient Yiddish, Producing also its own scholarship. Uh some Jews venture into Russian culture and become obsessed with, with Russian culture. Other Jews later on will become Zionists, enlightened Jews, focused on the idea of a secular state. Many, many others will become involved in socialism and communism, inspired by Karl Marx, by Karl Marx and his ideas. That we can actually improve the world by uh, having the proletariat rise up and overthrow its oppressors. Marx made a false assumption on that one. Just to comment, then, keep you here on. <coughs> he assumed that the working classes were so persecuted that they would cooperate internationally and unite against their oppressors. It didn't quite work out like that. One studies uh, the various isms. Uh, Marxism, socialism, communism—as they overlap—and one finds that when one proletariat rose out, rose up, and took over the previous one, they became even greater <clears throat> tyrants, oligarchs than the previous order, and they would rise up and oppress the next mass, you know, the mass proletariat class. <coughs> yeah, go ahead, Akiva. What yeah, is the statistical ratio? It's an excellent question and there, is no, there are no statistics on, on that. We can, we can, we can venture a guess. Most of you were here at the very beginning of the day where we did a demographic overview of this period where the Jews shoot up within, within less than a century from 2.5 million to 9 million at the end of the, of the 19th century. But, um, and it, it's constantly in flux. Even, it's even hard to say. I mean, I, I have to backtrack on the question. What's religious exactly? Even with the people who identify as orthodox or, or traditional, we've seen already that there's been breakdown within the community. There's 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 good, better, and best, and there are people who are flagging on that. Uh, and their children often will not come out so religious. So I, I would say increase. I would say that maybe by the beginning of the century, there was over half half the people were somewhere identified with tradition, and by the end of the of the 19th century, uh, significantly over half. Uh, would be would be either out or on the way out. All the different enlightenments, whatever your affiliation, you got involved in. Uh, in, in, in let's say uh, you know secular literature, and that became you became that became your your obsession. All of them, in one way or another, undermined the Torah. All of them painted themselves as light, whereas tradition was oppressive and dark. Ironically, we look back at all this today and we recognize that tradition survived every one of them. Their works would be written, laced with ridicule of tradition, and, and, and they hated rabbis. To be a rabbi, that, I mean, listen, it's not so far removed from today's rabbis being ridiculed, but back then they were, there, was, there was a, a special acid re- reserved for the rabbis because it was new, and in any revolution there's going to be greater violence in the first generation. The idea, of course, was to destroy the entire old world order even before a new one could be built. They were literally burning their bridges. And as we see, almost none of them really survived in their initial set of principles. Probably the most uh, immediate example that comes to my mind the secular socialists, when they came to Israel. Would form a new movement that was initially called the and later the kibbutz movement. That led also to the moshav movement. The kibbutz movement, of course, collective farming, in which all of the people have equal status uh, and we all work together towards the collective good. Um, the initial kibbutz was Deganya. Anybody ever visit kibbutz Deganya on the southern uh, banks of the Kinneret? And kibbutz Deganya. About, not, about eight years ago, voted to decollectivize. I Meaning exactly. today, it's a glorified bedroom community where they have, let's say, some of the quaint trappings of kibbutz life, but as any, at any practical level, the people there just live there. They've abandoned most of the original ideals of the kibbutz movement. And that's the way with, with every one of these movements. Again, outside of Torah, there's nothing to last, nothing sustaining them other than their own ideals, which the next generation sees as obsolete. Uh, Once upon a time, famous names, and you see these names sometimes on street signs around Israel, the famous names today, you ask secular Jews to identify who are on the street signs, most of them can't. Even though, theoretically, those famous names would say, oh, this is my ideological descendant. But the descendant has no identification with their founder. There's no Torah, there's no, there's no reverence of what they call the Gedolim. So, if I mention names like Max Lilienthal or Avram Mapu, or, or, or his, his name was Shir, uh, which spelled out his whole name, Sh- Shlomo Yehuda Rapoport, <coughs> that means a lot to everybody here? Oh yeah, of course. Once upon a time, in the Jewish world, these were huge names. Um, Rapoport's famous though, yeah. No, not this one. No. Um, Shir actually was initially a Talmud Chacham. he, was, he came from a Choshu family, he had, his father-in-law was the Ktos uh, we we'll go do a family genealogy, see if you're connected to him, Rav Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, he edited the Ktos, but he got caught up in the Enlightenment, even sometimes smart Torah Jews got involved in this. His goal of course was to seek what he called a better life for the Jews. And uh, eventually, he ran afoul of his colleagues, and his colleagues um, criticized him. I don't think he was ever put in cherim, but close. And they distanced themselves from him. We know the eventual fate of the maskelim themselves. The Hebrew word is maskilim or haskela. Um They grew bitter when they discovered, you know, the dream was, let's assimilate, we'll acculturate, and the goyim will finally embrace us. And what a shock it was for them to learn that the Goyim hated them not just as much as when they were the old smelly kind of Jew as Napoleon had it, but even more. And and this new virulent kind of anti-Semitism would um, despise the Jew who tried to become like the non-Jew. And I quoted many, many uh, weeks ago, I quoted one of the Lloyd George, and he said, the Jew can't win. He commented on Jews in history. They hate us for keeping our traditions. They hate us for assimilating. They hate, they hate us when we try to integrate and live in their societies. And they hate us when we try to form our own state. Paraphrasing his comments. Um, you think about the, the Romanovs, the, the anti-Semitic Russian family. Uh, that, that led Russia, Tsarist Russia, so they, uh, you know, in theory they advocated that Jews should assimilate, but they rejected all the works of these assimilated Jews, of the Muskili. Um, that's why, if you really understand the flow of history, initially these were idealists who were trying to integrate in society. Later they'd become embittered and increasingly anarchistic and a counter establishment. And as anybody know what I'm referring to? What would eventually come out of this? In Russia? Anybody? Anybody ever studied Bolshevism? Yeah, that's That's Bolshevik. The Bolsheviks at the uprising. But we're ahead of ourselves right now. But it's it's important as we're considering the big sweeping uh, um, momentum of history that you understand that there's a beginning, middle, and end to these processes. Things things happen for a reason. Um, What they couldn't admit was that many of their values were actually present in traditional Judaism. They just didn't know it, and increasingly, they wouldn't know it because their kids got no, no Jewish education, so they're cut off. So they claimed the goal of life was to love others, to generate new ideas and talents, to become creative in scholarship and thought, and they didn't recognize that you could do that within Torah. <coughs> as far as they understood, <coughs> they understood Torah Jews were um, stereotypically intolerant and backwards, they were reactionary. Of course, it was a catch-22, a, a lose-lose proposition because the rabbis, in, in, in responding to these immense challenges of the reform of the Enlightenment, had to be all that. They had to be negative. They had to be reactionary. Uh, and they had to be, uh, you know, they had to be uh, appear at least backwards, in, in, in defending tradition. Um, it, was very, it, was, it, it, was, it was an impossible time. Right. They're heroes. We're going to hear some of the heroes who, who tried to present Torah in the right way and they'd be branded intolerant. And that's, you know, on some level, if you ever get involved in Kiruv or you get involved in some kind of uh, interaction with, with non-from Jews and you, you're seen as the, as the voice of tradition, trying to explain tradition, um, some people will say that you're intolerant and you can't stop them and I wouldn't even worry about trying. That's their, that's their perspective. But really, in the end, what we're trying to do is say there really is a standard. And all these breakaways are not legitimate. I, I, I hesitate in calling it Reform Judaism. I, it's, it's a problem. It's wrong to consider that Reform is another legitimate option within Judaism. It's not. It was, it was in its own day, by their own account, a uh, self-conscious breakaway. They were not Judaism. They were a new religion, and as we pointed out in many instances, much more closely aligned with something like uh, Presbyterian Christianity, where Islam is much closer to real Judaism than a former conservative. In Tsarist Russia, well, let's talk about Tsarist Russia, as it appears. Um, that will become the central home of most of Jews in the 19th century. Poland, which had been much more the, the hub of Jewish activity, has become increasingly hostile. And Jews drift east. Whose family here lived somewhere in, the, in, in Russia once upon a time? I mean, can it Belarus? What's that? Belarus. Belarus is absolutely, yeah, sure. Um, so the Jews move east. The large, by the 19th century, the largest concentration of the Jews lived in Tsarist Russia... At the time, it was 1.35 million, but that's a lot out of 2.5 million total. Um, very few lived in what they call Mother Russia, the center. <coughs> um, a decree in, in 1795 limited the areas where Jews could live to the western fringe, what's called the Pale of Settlements, which stretches mostly from the, if you, if you have a map in your mind, from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And the area is what we think of as, as classically Jewish area of Europe is Eastern Poland, Lithuania, White Russia, Ukraine, the Crimea, Bessarabia. Um, there would be new decrees that start to come out that will limit their options in business. This is, this is in contrast with the Jews in Western Europe who have increasing opportunities. Now in the East, um, they're no longer allowed to sell liquor. They're, no lo- they're not allowed to work in outside districts. They have to stay within the Jewish ghettos. Um, the Russians defended, they say, we want these problematic Jews to, to be involved in productive labor. We want them to go back to the farm life and wean them from their exploitative mercantile work because the stereotype of Jews of being the Shylock, miserly tax collectors, and and and, and economic, the people involved in banking and such um, had had caught on, so they want to send the Jews back to the farm. Ironically, of course, that's where we belong. Remember, back in the days of the Talmud, which is the last time we were really notably farmers, um, that was we were more connected to Kadosh Baruch Hu. Farming is the best kind of job if you want to if you want to develop your bitachon. Um, what the Some effect of these new decrees is that Jews start to starve. There's just no money because they're not capable yet, at least as farmers, and there's not much for them to do. Tsar Nicholas has a goal. He wants to make Jewish Christians. Um, He has a new movement that he's founding. His goal was to have what we would recognize today as a Jews for Jesus uh, kind of a movement. Where uh, Jews would embrace Yashka and Russian orthodoxy and go after other Jews and he was a colossal failure at this enterprise most Jews, even those who had embraced the Haskalah wouldn't become Christian. some would but most didn't. Um, ironically, the opposite happened. are you familiar with the phenomenon called the Sabbatniks? Nobody nobody's heard of that before no. okay. Um, so the Sabbatniks were Christians who, beginning in the late 18th, uh, 18th century, um, were Christian. But get this: they started keeping a brief Not quite sure whose covenant they felt they were part of. Um, they they they, um, they rejected the Trinity, the Christian Father, Son, and Holy Ghost Trinity, in favor of pure monotheism, Torah style. They only accepted the Tanakh, what they call the Old Testament. They rejected the New Testament. In other words, they were Jewish oriented Christians, and this became a movement. That's exactly the opposite of what the Tsar wanted. Uh, they actually observed Shabbos, that's why they hence the name Sabbatniks. On Saturday? T- uh, I mean, yeah, on Shabbos. They kept Shabbos. They're not allowed to, but they did it anyway. Goethe Shema Shabbos, Misa. By the mid 19th century, they'd be persecuted as much as Jews. They were a distinct group, they looked like Ashkenazi Jews. Some of them intermarried with Jews. You can understand sociologically how that could happen. Well, it doesn't seem to be so much of a difference. Um, and some of them converted to Judaism. Now, the Russian government tried as best they could to isolate them both from both religions. Uh, in the end, the Nazis would eventually come and slaughter both Jews and Sabotniks. They didn't really care. The Soviet Union would have forced them to identify as Russians and not Jews. But interestingly, when the the Soviet Union fell in 1989, uh, many Sabbatniks actually came to Eretz Israel. Some of them live here today, and some converted, and some are just good Zionist Christians. Um, There's some pretty famous Israelis who may have descended from Sabbatniks. I'll throw out some names if you know anything about modern Israel. Raful Eitan. Is a public political uh, military political figure very well known Ariel Sharon is the name you probably are familiar with who may have roots in the sabatniks. Nomi Shemer who wrote some of the iconic uh, songs <coughs> of the Zionist culture uh, probably familiar I was that the in the no 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 not the me Olami singer that's that's a different one no she wrote um, Yoshalim Shil Zahav oh, probably yeah. her most famous yeah. but Luliyah he she has a bunch of songs that she wrote that very much considered like uh, the modern-day poet, uh, poet laureate of the, of the Jews. I mean, anyway, the, she, may, she may have Subotnic uh, roots. Yeah, go ahead. <coughs> but but they were labeled as Russians, so, so they weren't sent to camps or anything? Constru- they, were they, were, they were sent to concentration. I said wow. the Nazis got they, they them and the Jews. Yeah, they cured them, but I didn't know. Yeah, they got the same treatment as the Jews. So at first they cured them. No, no, so they also sent them to camps. Yeah. Here's something you must know in history. In 1827, the Cantonese Decrees, Decree really, came out. And this is something that most people know about, if you know anything about Jewish history, so you should be, you should be well-versed. Cantonese just means military camp. And the decree demands a quota of Jews from each community to serve in the Russian army. It's forced conscription. It's a draft. But it's called the Cantonist Decrees because they, their impact is far-reaching. It doesn't just impact the boys who are, dra- who, who are misfortunate enough to be drafted. It destroyed much of the Jewish community. It destroyed the rabbis, too, for the following reason. Here's the dynamic. And it dominates the mindset of Russian Jewry in the 19th century, and it at least partly explains the increased assimilation. Now, those of us whose families came from, from Russia, and many of them fled, and many came to Americas, and then they lost their tradition, Well, that wasn't just America. That process had already begun, often with the Cantonist decrees, um, in the the preceding decades. Now, each community is given their quota. Send us X number, percentage of your Jewish boys. And the people who led the community often were rabbis and religious figures, and they're in a quandary. Okay, They had to fill the quota, so they sent people. The Russians would would then indiscriminately send their own, they would would grab their own children. Um, This is a a ploy that later the Nazis will use by the Kapos to let the people in charge of oppressing the Jews be Jews themselves who are blackmailed and (coughs) doing it at threat of their own lives. So now the Jewish community leaders uh, draft other people who then hate them. Understandably, How come you didn't send your own kids? My kid versus yours. Of course, who managed to get around all of the draft? Wealthy people who would sometimes bribe officials to spare their own kids. So inevitably it was the poor who suffered the most. The process was like this. The boys at 12 were taken away to be trained. And they were there for the formative years of their lives. When they otherwise could be sitting, learning Torah, and developing their neshamas, they were trained to be Russian cantonists. And um, they would become mercenaries at 18. And their period, this was the decree, the period of service in the army, I may know how long they had to serve for? 20 years. 25. 25 years. Arguably, the uh, formative years of a person's life from 18, right, until 43, they served in the Russian army and often, yeah, a little bit more and often that was it. I mean, sometimes they stayed professionally because they didn't have any other prospects professionally. Rarely, once they served out their term at the age of 43, after giving the best of their life from 12 to 43 to the Russians, did they ever return to the Jewish community or to observance. It's during this period that a new figure appears called a, in Yiddish a chaper, not a happy term. You hop the gemara and you get the gemara, but a chaper means somebody who gets, who grabs, who takes. So these choppers, Jewish, were like bounty hunters. Who went around stalking the streets for prey to deliver them to the russians to fulfill the cantonist decrees and the leaders meanwhile were powerless they couldn't stop the hoppers and they had to fill the quotas and 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 the situation increases uh, the impossible situation gets worse sometimes parents would do things so they were so desperate they would cut off the, their the right index finger of their uh, uh, from their son's hand, and that way the son would be exempt because so he couldn't fire a gun, couldn't function very well in life either. But that was the price he had to pay. When they the, <coughs> they can't fire is that right? I don't know. No, yeah, it's a good question. Later reforms would include the Tsar who would want to teach his own brand of Judaism. He couldn't uh, make everybody Christian, at least that they learned his preferred style of Judaism. And he got a, a he got an ally. Um, he appointed as... Tsar Nicholas appointed his educational minister in the form of the, the maskil I mentioned before, Max Lilienthal. Eventually Lilienthal... Lilienthal is a part of a lot of stories. There's a famous story of Lilienthal coming, what actually happened with, uh, with the um, Beis When he came to the shul, there's a whole story was, basically, did he publicly rebuke Lilienthal or not? Lilienthal, if Lilienthal at this stage in his life, his posture and his attitude and his appearance seem to be a traditional Jew who's trying to help, he claimed, he's trying to help the Jews by, by giving them a better life uh, through the Haskalah. Later on, he left Europe and became a reform rabbi in Cincinnati. So, so much for the traditional Jewish garb. Um, he was appointed to convince Jews that the czar's intent was all benign, all good. He said rabbis had to have secular degrees. De- excuse me, degrees in university. makes so much Of course, yeah, degrees. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Um, they could wear their traditional garments, but they had to pay a special tax now to look Jewish thought was particularly strong in trying to thwart the harmful influence of the Talmud. He divided different jobs between the useful, people who were craftsmen, farmers, and the useless, like the rabbis. The system eventually that was developed, the new educational system, was rife with corruption. The Russian system, everybody could be bought. Uh, and the Jews often bribe their way out of trouble they bribe their way out of the army and they bribe their way out of having to to fulfill these decrees and if you're a rabbi in yeshiva you bribe your way out of the curriculum Uh, in the end that would have its own uh, deleterious kind of effect that uh, you know people bribe their way often they they lead to corruption themselves you've heard the expression in a cesspool nobody comes out smelling clean uh... But if you take a, make a note of this, this life of the Eastern European Jew that some of us descend from created a certain resilience and strength of personality. The ability to bribe your way out of difficult situations, to smuggle in and smuggle whatever you needed if you were starving to death, would actually serve the Eastern European Jews well during the Shoah, better than their Western European counterparts. And, of course, some Jews we did allow did convert. Uh, that was certainly an option, and um, I've quoted this before, but it's reasonable quoting right now. When asked, when a, when a professor at St. Petersburg University was asked if he converted out of conviction, you remember what he answered? He says, yes, I'm convinced that it's better to be a professor in St. Petersburg than it is to be a malamed, a poor Torah teacher, in the shtetl. <coughs> So in the, with this as a background, some great figures emerge and maybe their life and legacy has a greater heroism as you understand what they were up against. Um, I'll mention two, there were others too, and we'll meet them, but I'll mention two of the names that come to my mind in associating those who fought uh, the Haskalah and the Reform. They're actually father-in-law and son-in-law, does anybody know who I'm referring to? They're very famous for this. The names are Rabbi Akiva Eger and, Rav, and and Rav Moshe Sofer, who's more commonly referred to by his book the Chassam Sofer. So Rabbi Akiva Eger and the Chassam Sofer, who, if just for their scholarship alone, they'd be they'd be uh, they'd be um, eternally famous. Um, rabbi Akiva Eger, of course, appears on virtually every page of the, the vil nashas in his emendations. And um, my rabbi once told me that if rabbi Akiva, when you see a note in the vil nashas from Rabbi Akiva Eger, imagine that Rabbi Akiva Eger himself had just walked over in the middle base medrash and said, go look up the Gemara in Kidushi right now. Don't take it as a suggestion, in other words. Um, he was considered... Posek to a large degree, the Rebbe Kiva Eger, His dates are 1761 to 1837. When he was 13, he wrote a sefer on, on Mesev's Chulim. When he was 15, he was already giving a Shir regularly. He was considered a leading misnaget in the early generations of the fight against the Sinists, but later on he'll be, he'll be a staunch proponent of traditional Torah and opponent of the Haskalah and of the Reform. His son-in-law, the Hassan Sofer, um, served in as Rav in Pressburg. Today it's called Bratislava. But Pressburg, um, there is a yeshiva in Pressburg in Givat Shaul that is a, is a legacy of his grandson, Rabbi Kiva Sofer. Um, he started as Rav there in 1804. He built a great yeshiva in Pressburg. If you think of Hungarian Jews in the 19th century. The Chassam Sofer and his descendants, the Ksab Sofer uh, and, and others, would should come to mind. Um, he would generate many great disciples. We'll hear about them in, in this class. Uh, he was so strong against reform and against any improvement that a, a figure of speech was coined and would be eternally associated with Chassam Sofer. Um, do you know that we have? Uh, there's a prohibition in the Torah, Parshish Emor, called Chadash. Chadash. Y'all know what that is? So ask me. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, ask Elizabeth, me. I ask sure me. Not much. What's new with you? Um, so the uh, thank you for sending me up there. The uh, chadash is the prohibition against um, eating. you do you remember this one? We did this in tomorrow class once. It's eating the new grains before either the korban Pesach or today we don't have a korban Pesach. This is the the second day of Pesach. All grains are new. At which point from Pesach they become a yashon, they're old and then permitted. And it's a major area of Torah and it's neglected and it's a great topic in itself, but we'll we should uh, we'll, we'll talk about it another time. But the expression is chadash asr m'dah Torah. And the Hasan t- sofer is associated with this idea of chadash asr m'dah Torah, new, anything new, is forbidden from the Torah, referring of course to these new movements that love, fell in love, and were obsessed with anything new, reform and and and, uh, and the <coughs> and the enlightenment. <coughs> and he fought it. Now had he fight it, it was a very interesting strategy. He, unlike others, never published polemics. He never wrote explicitly against the movement, um, by doing so in a sense that would have given them greater significance. They didn't deserve that kind of treatment. His way of fighting would be to exclude them, excluding the reform from Jewish society. Um, and he became isolationist. And if you think about Orthodox Jews today as being isolationist, part of that was self, is, is and was self-conscious and a strategy of resisting this seductive, tempting new life. Um, the problem that he presented for the Haskalah was he was everything. That they um, couldn't despise in a rav, where they said, "Oh, that old traditional dress, and they're unkempt and unrefined, and they smell, and they're disgusting." Well, for each of those criticisms, the Chasam Sofer, if you know about him, cut such a figure. He was refined. He was aristocat- aristocratic, in his demeanor. He was the everything the stereotype of reform, uh, you know, didn't portray. I mentioned him this last Shabbos. You remember it was his suggestion that the earthquake that um, levels much of Swas in 1837 may have been because uh, Swas had almost displaced Yerushalayim in importance, and that's not supposed to be. Yerushalayim is the eternal center of the Jewish people. Um, he is a great figure who has political connections around the world, including with his own Austro-Hungarian Empire. And Rav Akiva Eger, in one interesting episode... These are very ex- exciting times, and it's during these times that possibilities heretofore unthinkable now presented themselves, and Rabbi Kiva Eger suggested to his son-in-law, why don't we do something about having new rights of access to our holiest place in the world, not to the Western Wall, but to the Temple Mount itself. Not necessarily going up there, because we're in a state of Tuma, Tumas space, we don't have a Paraduma, but at least have some access to the periphery. He asked his son-in-law, and his son-in-law was much more a man of, uh, of, of involved in worldly affairs and he, he said um, I can't seek any diplomatic connections like this the Ottomans who rule in Eretz Israel are zealous and they keep all non-Muslim, non-Muslims away from their buildings but uh, both of them would, would, uh, would be in favor in theory they actually will have students um, who, uh, who's going to suggest much more their student would be Spheres Kalisher who we're going to talk about as, as uh, sometimes seen as the father of the modern orthodox, of the national religious movement, at least in his ideas, in Eretz Yisrael. Um Tomorrow, in <coughs> Hashem, we're going to take a totally different direction and talk about... Um, a radical transformation now in the, in the, in the um, Hasidism movement. Now that the Hasidism movement has come of age, it's now fully matured a couple generations in, um, all kinds of significant changes go within, and we're going to meet one of the exciting great figures of all of Hasidists, and that, of course, is Rav Menachem Mendel uh, Morgenstern of Kutsk, otherwise known as the Kotzker Da'on, the Kotzker Rebbe.